All right, we're going to welcome back Dr. Paola. He's going to talk to us again about some ethical and uh, legal issues with, um, or with uh, medicine. And he's ready. So let's welcome Dr. Paola back. Well, the, um, the topic, the original title of this talk was supposed to be um, recent uh, cases, recent cases in dermatology involving PAs and NPs, and um, go find those cases, uh, which I guess is good news for you guys that you, you're not involved in a lot of uh, cases that uh, make their way to the appellate court level. So what I decided to do instead is to talk about, you see there's a, a modified, uh, modified topic, a modified title, dermatologic practice, recent cases of interest to PAs and NPs, and I hope that these, that the two cases that we're going to talk are of interest uh, uh, to you. And we'll talk about a number of, they bring up a number of issues that I, I hope you'll, uh, you'll find interesting. It, it'll give us, it'll afford us an opportunity to talk about uh, statutes of limitation, statutes of repose, uh, talk about a couple of rather obscure doctrines called the uh, continuing treatment doctrine and the fraudulent concealment doctrine. It'll afford us another opportunity to talk about uh, uh, direct liability and vicarious liability. Um, and so I'm hoping that you'll, uh, you'll find these cases to be uh, of interest and, and applicability uh, to your own practices. The first case is uh, from uh, Iowa. And the, uh, it's, a, it's a really recent case, you can see, uh, from 2012, the state of Anderson versus Iowa Dermatology Clinic. And you see that the events of the, um, of the case uh, took place back in uh, 1996, when a dermatologist uh, performed an excisional biopsy of a mole on the left side of a patient's neck. He sent the uh, biopsy sample to a uh, dermatopathologist who evaluated the uh, uh, biopsy sample and his opinion came back, uh, quote, irritated fibrotic epithelioid cell nevus, unquote. A couple of years later, uh, in February of uh, 1998, the same dermatologist took another uh, biopsy uh, from the same site and this time analyzed it himself instead of sending it to the dermatopathologist. And based on his analysis of the sample, concluded that it was uh, not malignant. Unfortunately, the sample was subsequently uh, inadvertently destroyed. A little more than a year later, in April of 1999, the, the same dermatologist uh, took an additional sample uh, from the same area of the plaintiff's neck and uh, this time sent the sample to the uh, dermatopathologist, the same dermatopathologist who evaluated it before. And this time the dermatopathologist uh, recognized what he called mitotic figures. And so two weeks later, the dermatologist uh, performed an, a complete excision of the lesion, which was sent for uh, pathological examination. And the dermatopathologist found no atypical cells in the uh, excisional uh, biopsy. 
In September of 2000, uh, be, uh, rather between Sept uh, September of uh, 2000 and September of 2007, the dermatologist, the same dermatologist, saw the plaintiff on a number of occasions. And in March of 2008, the plaintiff discovered uh, a lump on, uh, on the chin, which in August of 2008 was uh, removed and evaluated by, again, a pathologist. And this time, uh, the biopsy report came back as melanoma. In 2009, the patient uh, succumbed uh, to his disease, to the disease, and in August uh, of 2010, August 11th to be exact, 2010, the plaintiff's uh, estate filed uh, a wrongful death suit. A wrongful death uh, suit is basically one brought on behalf of the uh, deceased person's beneficiaries alleging that the death was attributable uh, to either willful or negligent conduct on the part of the defendant. And as you can see from the, uh, the slide, the elements of a wrongful death action pretty much mirror the elements of a medical malpractice action. So the plaintiff has to establish that the defendant owed the deceased a duty, uh, that he was somehow negligent in, in, uh, in, in his performance of that duty, that he breached, in other words, the standard of care with respect to that duty, uh, that, that, uh, that negligence uh, caused the, uh, deceased, the deceased's uh, death, and that the deceased's death uh, caused financial damages for the dependents of the deceased. That's the one element that's different from uh, medical malpractice, and that this, uh, this uh, wrongful death action looks, the damage is the, the uh, economic damage that's done to the uh, dependents of the deceased. So, it, um, in, uh, when it goes to the trial court, the uh, derm dermatologist and the, uh, derma the uh, Iowa Dermatology Clinic, which was the dermatologist's employer, moved for a partial summary judgment. If you remember from uh, this morning when we talked about summary judgment, um, a summary judgment is basically an assertion on the part of the party who's moving for a summary judgment that there are no material facts in dispute and that the moving party is entitled to a verdict as a matter of law. So just based purely on the application of the law to the facts that everybody agrees with, that everybody agrees with, I deserve to win. That's the assertion in a summary judgment. And so the dermatologist and the Iowa Dermatology Clinic is moving for a summary, uh, for a partial summary judgment, and uh, the Iowa Pathology Associates are moving for a summary judgment uh, and the trial court uh, grants the motions. Now the question that you might ask at this point is what was the basis, what was the basis upon which they requested a summary judgment and what was the basis upon which it was granted? And the basis has to do with the statute of repose. Now probably everybody in the room um, is familiar with the statute of limitations and knows that the statute of limitations basically places a limit on how long a patient or a plaintiff has to sue after they have discovered or should have discovered that the doctor or physician assistant or some defendant injured them. 
So once the plaintiff or patient discovers that they were injured or should have discovered that they were injured, they have so much time to sue. That's a statute of limitations, okay? A statute of repose is different. A statute of repose looks at the time when the uh, injury took place and doesn't ask the question, did the plaintiff actually know that they were injured or should they have known that they were injured? It's just, it's just an absolute limit. When, was, when did the uh, events transpire? They have so much time to sue, okay? Um, now, under, under Iowa, under the Iowa statute of repose, and this is a, a, a quote from that statute, uh, in no event shall any action be brought more than six years after the date on which occurred the act or omission or occurrence alleged in the action to have been the cause of the injury or death. So what that's telling you is that the statute of repose in Iowa is six years. So if, if we know that the patient's estate filed suit uh, on August 11th, 2010, then the critical date in terms of the statute of repose becomes August 11th, 2004, six years prior, okay? The policies that underlie the statute of repose are pretty similar to the policies uh, that underlie the statute of limitations. And so this is a, this is a, um, a quote from um, a law review article. Uh, quote, because of the belief that the passage of time makes defending lawsuits unreasonably burdensome, all states have passed legislation in the form of statutes that specify the period of time during which a medical malpractice lawsuit may be filed. In other words, uh, the, that limit the filing of such lawsuits, lawsuits to a specific period of time after the alleged act of malpractice has taken place. So that's one of the um, policy rationales that underlies the statute of repose. The other one, besides the burden that it places on the defendant, is just an interest in closure, an interest in finality. We don't want, want to have to worry that we're going to have to defend ourselves uh, in an action about something that happened 20 years ago. And so we want to be able to go on with our lives, and the law uh, places a value on that uh, as well. Well, in the, uh, in, the, in the case of the state of Anderson versus Iowa Dermatology Clinic, the defendants prevailed on the issue of, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the dismissal of summary judgment based on the statute of repose, and not surprisingly, uh, the, the, the uh, plaintiff appeals. And the plaintiff's argument was that uh, he should be allowed to avoid the statute of repose under either or both of two theories. The first theory had to do with something called the fraudulent concealment doctrine, which we're going to talk about. And the second theory had to do with something called the continuum of negligent treatment doctrine. Let's talk a little bit about those and see how they apply to this case. Under the fraudulent concealment doctrine, uh, a party that uh, is seeking to shelter themselves under this doctrine has to prove the following elements. First of all, they have to prove, as a plaintiff, that the defendant made a false representation or concealed material facts. Secondly, they have to prove that the plaintiff, in other words, the person who's, who's uh, arguing in favor of the fraudulent concealment doctrine, 
uh, actually lacked knowledge of the true facts. Third, they have to prove that the defendant intended the plaintiff to rely upon uh, his representations. And fourth, that the plaintiff did in fact rely upon the representations to his detriment. Now, uh, just so uh, everybody understands these four elements, if you look at them closely, you'll see that they alternate. One of them is uh, objective, number one is objective, number two is subjective, number three is objective, number four is subjective. And the law often uh, does, uh, uses that type of strategy, okay, um, to make sure that people are not taking advantage of a technicality. So let's talk about, uh, about the fraudulent concealment doctrine and how, it, how the plaintiff argued that it applied specifically to this case. The plaintiff alleged, first of all, that the defendant did not disclose that he was going to interpret the critical uh, biopsy sample that was actually lost, the one that we talked about that was lost or misplaced. The plaintiff said, uh, the plaintiff's estate said, he never disclosed to me uh, that he was going to read it himself. In other words, no disclosure. And of course, the thing that complicated uh, the case was that by the time this went to trial, the plaintiff was already uh, deceased. Um, the court writes, the plaintiffs contend that Dr. Love should have explained to Erica that he was interpreting the February 28, 1998 slide himself rather than having it examined by a board-certified uh, pathologist. However, we conclude that the, plaintiffs, the plaintiff has failed to produce admissible evidence tending to prove uh, that she was not informed that Dr. Love evaluated uh, that specimen. In other words, by now she was already deceased, and so it wasn't a case of he said, she said, it was just he said and no she said. So the estate could say he didn't tell her, but they had no proof that he didn't tell her. So the court rejects, the court rejects this first argument here that the defendant neglected to disclose that he was going to read the sample himself. But they weren't done yet. The plaintiff wasn't done yet. They had a second argument, which was actually a very clever argument. They argued, they argued that the court had to treat this not just as, uh, it wasn't enough, in other words, that the, that the defendant told the plaintiff that he was going to interpret that biopsy sample himself. He needed to go through an informed consent process with her, the plaintiff said. And he did not go through such a process, they alleged. In other words, the plaintiff is arguing that the defendant had to tell, that, that the defendant had to tell the plaintiff, the benefits of my interpreting the slide myself instead of sending it to a dermatopathologist, the risks and the alternatives. Okay, so they're saying this was an opportunity for informed consent that was missed. This is what the court writes. The plaintiffs argue we should apply an informed consent analysis to this determination that a physician's failure to disclose a material risk in the context of informed consent constitutes a concealment of a material fact that justifies application of the fraudulent concealment doctrine in this case. The court goes on. Our informed consent case law provides that the patient ordinarily will be required to present expert testimony relating to the nature of the risk and likelihood of its occurrence 
in order for the jury to determine from the standpoint of the reasonable patient whether the risk is in fact a material risk. Now you can see from this slide that the court ultimately rejects it, but this is a, a very good argument, it's a very powerful argument. And uh, some of you may be familiar with, with, uh, with the fact that the, the frontier of informed consent is constantly evolving and constantly expanding, and there are cases that one can access uh, in which courts have found that physicians uh, or, or other healthcare providers have a duty as part of informed consent to do more than just tell patients about the risks, benefits, and alternatives to a procedure, but they have to disclose information, for example, about their own personal experience with regard to that procedure, okay? So for example, uh, in the, the Johnson v. Kokomore case was a case that involved a, a, a neurosurgeon uh, in, I think it was in Rochester, Minnesota, a patient went to see him with a very complicated uh, aneurysm, in, uh, brain aneurysm, and because of the location, it was very tricky. And apparently, the, the neurosurgeon exaggerated his own experience in terms of uh, surgical experience with repairing those, and she had an adverse outcome with, uh, as a result of the surgery, and she sued him uh, for uh, a breach of uh, informed consent and actually prevailed. Okay, and uh, the court felt that a reasonable patient would want to know that you didn't have the experience that you said you had with regard to repairing these aneurysms, especially since uh, there's a world-class uh, medical facility right down the block in, in Mayo Clinic where there were people that did have more, more experience. But there are other cases, and there's the second case here, the Dutry v. Patterson case, where courts have come down on the other side of the equation. And what seems to be crucial in terms of whether a court will allow a plaintiff to prevail in these kind of actions is whether the plaintiff does a good job in tying the, the, uh, the physician or physician's experience to outcome. If they have good data that shows that experience equals good outcome or experience, more experience equals better outcome, then the courts will treat that as relevant to the informed consent question, okay? But they won't allow a, a, a plaintiff to introduce that evidence if there's no nexus or no connection between experience and outcome, okay? So again, uh, court doesn't like, doesn't like this, um, this argument either. They write uh, the informed consent argument. We conclude that the evidence in the summary judgment record is insufficient to raise a genuine issue of material fact as to whether Dr. Love's failure to disclose the difference in qualifications between himself and a pathologist was a failure to disclose a material fact for purposes of our application of the fraudulent concealment doctrine. Again, the, the thing that I would ask you to take away is that if the plaintiff was able to, I don't know if the data is out there, but if the plaintiff was able to show uh, data that showed that dermatopathologists are better at recognizing uh, 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 melanoma than uh, dermatologists who are not board certified in, in dermatopathology, then the court might have allowed uh, her to introduce that, that, uh, that testimony. The second argument that the patient had up her sleeve about trying to, to escape from the, uh, the statute of repose 
was the uh, continuum of negligent treatment doctrine. And under the continuum of negligent treatment doctrine, uh, a plaintiff uh, has to establish, if they want to take advantage of this doctrine, first of all, that there was a continuous and unbroken course of treatment that was negligent, and secondly, uh, that the treatment was so related as to constitute one continuing wrong. And again, the plaintiff doesn't prevail with this argument either, and the court makes clear uh, why, she, why she didn't prevail, uh, although they don't, uh, they don't uh, preclude the use of this argument uh, in the future. Um, and here's what they, they found uh, convincing. We cannot conclude the, uh, the record engenders a fact question on whether the care that continued into the period of repose constituted negligent care, even, as, even assuming without deciding that continuing negligent care would overcome the statute of repose. We find no uh, expert testimony in this record establishing that under the applicable standard of care, the defendants should have undertaken other diagnostic procedures or treatment modalities after April 15, 1999, under the circumstances of the case. So what they're saying is, is this. They're saying, we're not telling you that if you had proven uh, that there was a, con there was a the, the continuum, if you had established the continuum of negligent treatment doctrine, we're not saying that that would have told the uh, statute of repose. They're not saying that it would have told the statute of repose, but they're saying, we'll assume it would have told the statute or stopped the statute of repose, but you didn't meet the requirements of the continuum of negligent treatment because you never showed that the defendant did anything wrong during the six years uh, of, the, of the statute of repose. He never proved that he did anything wrong. The other point um, that this case makes, uh, of course, is um, it illustrates the uh, issue of um, vicarious liability, uh, otherwise known as imputed negligence, negligence. We had a little bit of an opportunity to talk about this this morning. Again, uh, vicarious liability refers to a situation where you have two parties, A and B, uh, and by, re by, by, uh, by some reason of some relation uh, existing between A and B, the negligence of uh, A is to be charged against B, even though B has played no part in the uh, negligent conduct or indeed has done uh, all that he possibly can do to prevent it. The, again, as we saw in the case this morning, the type of, uh, of uh, imputed negligence or vicarious liability that was at issue in this case was respondeat superior, let the higher up answer because the physician, again, was a, an employee of the Iowa Dermatology Clinic, and so it's that brand of, um, of uh, uh, imputed uh, negligence or vicarious liability that is implicated. However, as we also mentioned this morning, there are other types of uh, imputed negligence or vicarious liability. Uh, I just want to touch briefly on each of them because it might be something that, that uh, has some applicability uh, to your practice either now or at some point in time in the future. Respondeat superior we talked about. Um, apparent, or, apparent or ostensible agency we also mentioned this morning. Uh, that is the situation that uh, prevails when somebody either intentionally or negligently induces someone else uh, to believe that a third person is his agent. 
So uh, even if, let's say, uh, the physician in this case, the dermatologist in this case, was not an employee of the Iowa Dermatology Clinic, if the Iowa Dermatology Clinic either negligently or intentionally induced people to believe that he was, then the physician could be held to be the, uh, the ostensible or apparent agent of the Iowa Dermatology Clinic. And this is a, 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 um, a doctrine that is uh, of great importance in terms of hospital-based physicians. So you've probably heard about cases where either emergency room physicians or radiologists or anesthesiologists or pathologists who are all hospital-based are sometimes held to be the ostensible agents of the hospitals that they work at, even though they are not employees of those hospitals. Okay, so this is something that if you're a healthcare entity, uh, like a hospital or a, a clinic, you need to be uh, aware of. Another basis uh, for finding ostensible, for, for finding uh, imputed negligence, for imputing negligence or finding um, vicarious liability is the so-called non-delegable duty doctrine. And uh, the, the, the famous case that uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, that all the law students read about in, in health law is Jackson v. Power, which is an Alaska case, uh, which basically uh, held that uh, general acute care hospitals uh, have a non-delegable duty to provide emergency room care to their patients. And they cannot escape that duty by delegating it to, let's say, a private emergency room group. They can delegate the task of taking care of those patients to a private emergency room group, but if that group is negligent, they cannot delegate the responsibility for that negligence, okay? And generally, uh, if you try and ask when the Jackson v. Power Court, when they said, if you want us to tell you uh, what criteria we're gonna use for determining that a, that a, a, a duty is non-delegable, we really can't tell you except to say that if it's so important that we're not gonna let you delegate it, then we're not gonna let you delegate it. That's basically what they said. Um, of course, other reasons uh, to find vicarious liability is, is uh, the existence of a partnership. So partners in practice are liable for each other's uh, negligence. And then a joint enterprise you can think of as a partnership that is limited in scope and in time. So it's a, it's a mini partnership, and that's another basis for sometimes finding a vicarious liability. I'm not going to talk about enterprise medical liability, and I'm not going to talk about uh, derivative liability right now, okay? The second case I'm going to talk about took place in New York. And this case illustrates, this case illustrates uh, the liability of uh, multiple tortfeasors uh, uh, problem and how it's apportioned, how liability is apportioned about, uh, among multiple tortfeasors. And it also illustrates uh, the nature of a legal duty and the standard of care elements in a medical malpractice action. So in this case, um, the plaintiff, uh, Kyle, presents to a dermatologist for a changing mole in November of 2006. He undergoes a biopsy, and uh, pathology, pathologic examination shows the presence of a melanoma. He's referred to a surgical oncologist, Dr. Roses, and 
On November 30th, 2006, he goes to see Dr. Roses. Uh, subsequently, under his uh, orders, he undergoes a PET scan, which reveals a five millimeter nodule in the left lower lobe. On December 6, 2006, he undergoes a wide and deep excision and sentinel lymphadenectomy, which discloses uh, negative sentinel nodes and the presence of negative margins. Uh, on December 14, 2006, and January 4, 2007, Mr. Keel follows up with Dr. Roses, and I uh, just want to let you know what happened. We're told that on December 14th, Dr. Roses uh, wrote to, doc to the uh, dermatologist uh, about the uh, PET scan, indicating that the five millimeter nodule was, quote, of no concern, unquote, uh, but for which a follow-up CT scan would be performed. He also revealed the results of the PET scan. He also reviewed the results of the PET scan with Mr. Keel and uh, reminded him of the need to have a, a follow-up CT scan. Uh, and his notes reflect uh, that on January 4, 2007, he instructed Mr. Keel to return to him in two to three weeks, uh, but that the patient never returned uh, for follow-up visit. Between February 2007 and November 2008, Mr. Keel uh, returned to the derm dermatologist uh, on numerous occasions for removal and biopsy of suspicious lesions. In October, in, rather in August of 2007, he was referred to an internist, Dr. Diaz, for complaints of a cough. And between August 2007 and November 2008, the patient was seen on a number of occasions by the internist for a number of complaints, including cough, dizziness, uh, general herpes outbreak, dyspnea, uh, chest and back pain. Ultimately, in December of 2008, he is referred by the dermatologist to a neurologist at uh, NYU Medical Center, uh, Dr. Raps, and he's referred there for evaluation of severe pain in the uh, right lower back and buttock radiating to the right leg, and radiographic studies reveal the presence of widespread metastatic disease. He is diagnosed uh, at New York, uh, at, rather at Mount Sinai Medical Center with uh, malignant melanoma, with METs to uh, bone, brain, spine, liver, lungs. And interestingly, the lung nodule uh, that had initially appeared on the PET scan uh, two years earlier appeared to have remained relatively unchanged, having grown by only um, two millimeters. And he succumbed to his disease uh, in March of uh, 2009. In April, his uh, estate commences legal action against the defendants. And the defendants include everybody. They sued, they sued the uh, surgical oncologist, they sued the internist, and they sued the dermatologist for wrongful death, as we saw in the, in the last case. And um, our focus is going to be, for obvious reasons, on the dermatologist. Now, the dermatologist moves for summary judgment. And again, a summary judgment is an assertion that there are no material facts or no important facts that are in dispute. Both sides agree on the important facts. And the moving party is saying that I'm entitled to judgment as a matter of law. 
Okay? Now, his argument is the following. He says, I'm entitled to summary judgment because, as a dermatologist, I owed no duty to Mr. Kyle to order a CT scan, a PET scan, or other diagnostic studies, or to prescribe adjuvant therapy. He maintains, the dermatologist maintains, that the duty to order such uh, diagnostic studies basically devolved upon the other uh, subspecialists involved in the patient's care. And he says, the dermatologist says, that having referred the patient to the appropriate subspecialists, he had basically discharged his duty. I've discharged my duty, and therefore, uh, I, I deserve to, uh, to prevail as a matter of law. In support of this position, the dermatologist submits his own affidavit. One of the things that this case illustrates is, of course, the fact that you can serve as your own expert witness. That's one of the advantages of being a, a health care provider, being a defendant over a plaintiff. A plaintiff has to find a defend, uh, an expert witness, but if you're, if you're a defendant, you can serve as your own expert witness if you want. Okay? So he submits his own affidavit, and he also submits the affidavit of uh, an expert who is uh, licensed in New York State, uh, boarded in internal medicine, uh, oncology, hematology, and hospice and palliative care medicine. So he's got, he's got plenty of uh, uh, credentials. On the other side, the plaintiff submits the affidavit of an expert licensed uh, in New Jersey who is boarded in dermatology. And the, the, the plaintiff's expert says the following. He opines, quote, since the defendant knew that the oncologist recommended a follow-up CT scan, and since he removed a lesion that was changing from benign to malignant, the defendant departed from accepted dermatological practice by failing to write an order that Mr. Kyle have a CT scan. The expert opined that a follow-up CT scan could have, been, could have revealed a spread of melanoma earlier, giving Mr. Kyle a better chance to fight the cancer." Unquote. So there are causation issues that are going to come up, but again, the court isn't going to worry about causation issues here. Their concern is only with the duty question. Only with the duty question. We'll worry about causation later on. And the court, the court points out, and probably correctly so, they probably got the, the they were probably right on the, on the legal aspects of this question. The court writes, quote, sufficient questions of fact exist as to preclu preclude granting summary judgment to the defendant. The defendant's argument that he owed no duty to Mr. Kyle to order a follow-up CT scan addresses the nature and extent of his duty, not whether a duty existed in the first place. In contrast to cases where physicians refer a patient to a specialist and then stop treating that patient, here the defendant continued to treat Mr. Kyle. So a couple of things uh, to take away from this. Again, what the court is saying is that the jury has to see, this case has to go to the jury because summary judgment is not appropriate because it's clear that this doctor owed that patient a duty. The question is, there's no legal question about that. He clearly owed him a duty. The question that remains is what was the scope of that duty? And that's a question of fact for the jury to decide, okay? The second thing to take away from it is, is the fact that the court probably would have adopted a different position if the, physician, if the dermatologist was no longer on the case, okay? So that is something uh, to keep in mind in terms of uh, how to deal with cases uh, such as this. 
The last thing that is illustrated uh, by this case is, uh, the is how the, the liability of multiple tortfeasors can sometimes uh, come into play. So, like I said, the plaintiff in this case sued the surgical oncologist, he sued the internist, he sued the, uh, the dermatologist. Um, so you have multiple people who are alleged to have done wrong. There's one injury. So how does the law go about apportioning liability among multiple tortfeasors? Okay. Now this is a quote from a, from a, a tort law textbook and it gives you the paradigmatic simple case. This is the case that I guess every judge wants to see come before him. If two drivers negligently inflict, inflict harm that can be apportioned, each would be liable only for what he or she had done. For example, if the plaintiff had fainted in the street and driver one, approaching from the east, had negligently failed to stop and had run over the plaintiff's leg, and at the same time driver two, approaching from the west, had negligently failed to stop and run over the plaintiff's arm, each defendant would be liable for the respective harm done to the limb that each had run over. Unfortunately, <clears throat> it doesn't always happen that way. What happens if uh, driver one and two both run over the, <coughs> the, um, the plaintiff's torso? Then what do you do? We talked again about situations in which sometimes uh, patients, uh, rather defendants, can be held liable for the negligence of somebody else's actions, okay? And when you're dealing with a situation where you have multiple tortfeasors, that's, uh, that situation comes to the foreground. Let me tell you a little bit about this case. I don't know if any of you have heard of this case. This is not a new case. This is the, the, probably the only old case I'm going to talk about today. You can see it's from... Florida in 1974, but it's, it's a great case, and I, I got to tell you about it because I can't help but think that it might have uh, application for some of your practices. In this case, Variety Children's Hospital uh, v. Osley, what happened, it's, uh, you almost can't make stuff like this up. Um, a surgeon does uh, an operation upon a patient for the removal of a cyst in each breast. She has bilateral breast cysts. And the uh, scrub nurse in the operating room asks the surgeon, uh, do you want me to send the specimens in separate containers? And he says, no, they're benign. Go ahead and send them in the same container. Um, so the samples arrive in the pathology lab, and the pathologist, Dr. Garcia, uh, realizes that there are two specimens from two separate breasts, and he calls his supervisor um, and the supervisor says, all right, just go ahead and, go ahead and section them. And so he sections, he dissects uh, the specimens. And by the way, they were of different sizes. They were of different sizes. So everyone agrees that had one of them been labeled A and one of them been labeled B, even by the pathologist, they would have been able to work backwards and figure out which one came from which breast. Um, so he dissects them both together, destroys their identity. And this is what the court writes. And although only one was malignant, it was necessary for the plaintiff to have both breasts removed. I still, I'm not sure, exactly sure how if they destroyed the identity, they knew that only one was malignant, but um, anyway, they, supposedly they knew that only one was malignant, but she had to have both breasts removed. 
uh, because they couldn't figure out which one was which. So she sues. She sues, obviously, both the surgeon and the, the pathologist. And of course, this is a case that involves multiple tort feasors, right? You have a surgeon who did something wrong, and you had uh, a pathologist who did something wrong, okay? But this doesn't remind us of the, the driver one and driver two case, driving over an arm and a leg. I mean, how do you separate the wrongs that they did in this case? You can't. There's just no way to separate them. And so what the court said is where two or more physicians acting independently are negligent and their negligence combines to produce a single indivisible injury, each is charged with all of it. So what that means as a, as a matter of practice, as a practical matter for the plaintiff in this case, is that let's say the damages, I don't know, let's say the damages were a quarter of a million dollars. She can collect a quarter of a million dollars from the surgeon or a quarter of a million dollars from the pathologist or half from the surgeon and half from the pathologist, or 25% from the surgeon and 75% from the pathologist, or 75% from the surgeon and 25% from the pathologist. It really doesn't matter. The, what's going to happen is that she's going to get her $250,000, and some combination of the two of them are going to have to pay for it. And, and so, again, this illustrates uh, how the law sometimes will have to deal with uh, a situation where you have uh, multiple tortfeasors. All right, that's all I, I have to tell you today uh, about uh, recent cases. I hope you guys found it interesting, and I'll, I'll uh, answer any questions anybody might have about uh, any of the topics I talked about or, or either of the cases we talked about. Thank you. I have a question. Um, and I apologize if I missed something that you described. In the very first case, there was a lesion removed from the neck that the dermatologist thought was benign, correct? The, the, uh... He took one, one lesion and it, he read it as benign? Yeah, he sent it to the dermatopathologist who read it as, as inflammation, basically. And then he did another biopsy in the same area? Right. And he read it himself as benign, and then he lost the slide? Right. The thing I'm missing is, how do they take that and assume that that's related to the melanoma? I mean, the melanoma could be de novo. How are they? Well, the, again, some of those issues are, gonna, are going to come up when you get past the summary judgment stage. They're going to come up. Uh, at, at trial, but they, they did go back, they did go back, and this is my fault, because I, I, yeah. I, I left it out, of, uh, that's an important, I'm glad you brought this up. They did go back and review the slides um, after they, they found the melanoma and found that there were uh, mitotic figures oh. in the, the original one uh, that, the, that the dermatopathologist read okay. that was missed. I see, okay, that makes sense. Right, now, I'm you. sorry about that. No, thank you. Other questions? Well, thank you so much for listening. Oh, you have one? Okay. All right. I, I have a question about um, informed consent, um, verbal consent. You know, some people, when you take a biopsy, you get a consent. Um, 
What about, you know, AKs? What about, you know, the standard of care and the risks are, you know, scarring, infection. We talk about that. And if it happens, you know, where are we left? I mean, it seems like informed consent is worthless because the patient could say, oh, I didn't really understood or I signed it or they happen to have an, uh, a bad outcome from what was, you know, done appropriately. So I'm just confused how, how we are protected or are we not protected? Every time we touch the patient, patient do we have to get consent, written or verbal? And how do we document that in the chart? And does that help us or not? <laughs> okay. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, good, uh, it's a good question. Um, obviously, there are, there are problems with the, um, with the medical malpractice system. I mean, there are cases where, where uh, juries uh, uh, return verdicts in favor of plaintiffs who really don't deserve to win except the jury doesn't want to see them go without being compensated. So it's, uh, justice isn't always served, uh, even if some other interest is. But the way that informed consent is supposed to work, okay, is it doesn't, as I said earlier, it, it won't protect a provider who commits uh, a technical act of negligence, who does something that he shouldn't do. He, does, he, did, he did the surgery the wrong way. Uh, he employed the laser the wrong way. Uh, it doesn't protect you from that. But if informed consent is done properly, then it does protect you from a negligence suit where, where you are accused of not having elicited informed consent. That doesn't sound like much, but um, now the question is, what do you have to tell a patient in order to protect yourself from uh, a lawsuit that's targeted at you saying that you didn't elicit informed consent properly? And the answer is it depends as you guys probably know, it depends on what state you practice in. Some states follow what's called the professional standard, where you as a healthcare professional have to tell the patient everything that a reasonable healthcare professional would tell the patient about that procedure. Other states, and that's a good standard if you're a, pro if you're a provider, because it's somewhat predictable. You know what other people tell patients, uh, and so you pretty, know, pretty much know, or at least to a greater extent, know what you have to tell patients. But some states, and probably the majority of states, if not the majority, uh, a sizable minority of states follow the patient-centered standard, where you have to tell the patient everything that a reasonable patient would want to know about the procedure. And I imagine, I don't know, but you guys practice in this area, I imagine that if you're doing uh, procedures that involve the skin, whether cosmetic or not, that reasonable patients can be unreasonable, and maybe they want to know a lot of things that, that uh, you wouldn't think that they want to know. So um, it's... Uh, it's um, It's, I don't know what to say, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. It's, um, there's, no, um, there's no script that you can follow to make sure that, that you're not gonna be sued. I mean, the, what I tell my students at, at, uh, at the PA program is, look, you can give the patient, if you're gonna give them a new drug, you can give them the PDR, give them the insert from the PDR, and that's not gonna protect you. It won't protect you. You can tell them everything in the PDR, and they'll say that, your message was lost in, in the verbiage and that you didn't, do, you didn't do it right and you might lose the case, so. Um. Yeah, well, my you know, follow-up question is, is, you know, you tell them that they're probably gonna, you know, this biopsy could leave a scar. Well, they get a scar, they knew they were probably gonna get a scar, and then they sue you for the scar. 
So I don't get that part. You did exactly everything per protocol. It was just something that happened. You know, you give them, you know, I injected a pimple once, did the proper dilution of the catalog, and she got a divot. I've done a thousand of these. It happened one time out of a thousand. It, you know, I did the same technique that I always do. She's not suing me, but somebody else would have, and she's got this divot in her face. Hopefully it's all gonna go away. But if you do, if something happens, it's a risk of the procedure and you did everything per protocol, yeah. then they sue you, then what? Well, again, if they sue you for run-of-the-mill negligence, like you did something technically wrong, there's nothing you could have done to protect yourself against that, assuming that you didn't do anything wrong. This was just an outcome of the procedure. Uh, right. There's nothing, it couldn't have been avoided. There's nothing I could do to, pro to, to protect myself from that lawsuit, okay? There's nothing you can do. Uh, but, but if she turns around and sues you for lack of informed consent, then you can provide the evidence of the informed consent mm -hmm. process and what was, what was said, and that, that hopefully will, will short-circuit the, short the process. Right. But yeah, we do that in our office. Informed consent, my question is just, what happens if something happens? And they try to sue you when they know what it probably would happen, even well, if you did everything right. You know, anybody can sue anybody can sue anybody for anything. I could probably be sued for by one of you guys for for uh, wasting your time today, um, and I might lose that suit. You know, uh, and by the way, I don't have deep pockets or insurance for that. So, um, I was wondering what you would recommend when removing multiple skin tags. Because if you submit, let's say a patient has 30 skin tags and you remove them all and you put them in one jar because they're all um, in the axilla. If one of them comes back abnormal, you're not gonna know which one it is. But it isn't practical, practical to submit all of them in separate bottles and label you know, A, B, C, D, E you know, down their armpit. What do you recommend? Does that happen a lot? I mean, does that come up a lot? No. Okay. Um, well, if it, if it does happen, then you'll remember a variety v. Children's Hospital. Um, I don't know what you would do in a situation like that. I mean, I would think that that would be a, a, reason, uh, a reason not to do that because, you know, we, we look at what that surgeon did and we say, well, that was kind of, that was kind of, you know, short-sighted, but uh, there may, be, may have been something about that specimen where he was, he may have done thousands of these and was sure it was going to be benign, and so he, was, he would basically be doing the same thing that you'd be talking about, right? On, on a different scale, yeah. I think. Um, I don't know. What, what, as, what would you suggest? Well, I t I, for a while I didn't submit them at all, and then something was like, oh, well, you know, what if one of them was abnormal, it was a little bit of pigment that could have been irregular. And now I'm submitting them all in one jar. Okay. But I just didn't know whether you had a recommendation as I, to how, how I should proceed with something like well, that. Well, I guess, you know, I guess if you wanted to be safe, you wouldn't submit them all in one jar. But I can tell you what would happen as a, as a practical matter. If it, if it ever, let's say, let's say something it went to, uh, that some, one of them turned out to be malignant, you couldn't identify which one was malignant, and then it went to trial, I think the argument, your defense would be exactly what you told me that I behaved reasonably, that it would have been unreasonable to put all of the, the samples in separate uh, containers. Nobody does that. No reasonable uh, PA practicing in dermatology or physician practicing in dermatology would do that. 
And so then it comes down to, did you meet the standard of care? Right? The patient had an adverse outcome, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the standard of care uh, was violated. The other thing that occurs to me, now, you said that it's Im impractical to send them all in different, how many samples could, because I'm not a dermatologist, how many samples might we be talking about? Well, I mean, some patients have 30, okay. 40, 50 skin tags that they want removed. Okay. And, um, and so, um, is it, is it, is it also more expensive to the patient to, to send them in separate containers or not? I believe that it would be. So one way you might address, one way, one way you might address that is through the informed consent process mm -hmm. and say, look, I don't think any of these are going to be malignant, but, uh, and so what I'm going to do is send them in the same container. I could send them in separate containers, but it's going to increase the cost to you. What do you want to do? And leave it on the, leave it on the patient. That would be another way of approaching it. Thank you. Okay. I've got a question about the dermatologist that found the melanoma and referred out to the surgeon and then kept treating the patient and later on got dinged because he didn't do the follow-up on the CT scan. Yeah. If he, some patients just say, I'm done with doing stuff and I don't want to do anything more and there's nothing you can do to talk him into it. If he just charted that he recommended a follow-up CT and the patient declined, would that been a, have been enough to get him off the hook? Yeah, it might have been. It's like, it's, I guess, the, the equivalent of like sending patients, you know, in, in this day and age, we send patients, you know, some type of a written communication. Besides just charting it, charting it's better than nothing, but we might send them a registered letter and say, you know, the surgical oncologist says that you need to have a follow-up CT scan. Please call my office to arrange that study, or, or please make sure you follow up with the, uh, with, uh, with, the, with um, anyway, some type of written communication. That might have been, that might have been enough. But again, it, it, wouldn't, it may not have been enough to win the case at the summary judgment stage. It may be enough to win, the, to win it when it goes to the jury, but probably not enough to win it at the summary judgment stage. Because the question would be whether he discharged his duty by doing that, not whether he owed a duty. Thank you so much.